It's the only context in which my name or Dave should be in the same sentence as the word solicitation. We're looking ahead at comic books scheduled to release in January 2024 and highlighting the ones we can't wait to read. Episode 170 of The Byword begins now. Welcome to the Nerd By Word, the best nerd-centric podcast this side of the Delta Quadrant. On today's itinerary, we're scanning ahead to January 2024's comic book solicitations. See, I feel dirty even saying it. At which titles we can't wait to get our hands on. God, I made it worse. All right, hurry up and cue the sounder for... Nerd News! Dave, what's up? Uh, yeah, so uh, nerd news-wise, and I need a shower after that introduction, just so you know. Um, after, uh, so news-wise, um, you know, the world is kind of crazy out there right now. And as far as, like, you know, the, the, the actor strike still going on, the studios bucking, and there's so much uh, weird stuff going on in the world right now. You have the, the, the mess in the Middle East, the mess in Washington, D.C. The world is messy. So I decided to zoom in on a very, very small issue because... God knows a nerd podcast is not the place to deal with the big issues. And uh, I found an interesting uh, situation that goes back to a movie that you and I both enjoyed quite a bit. And that is uh, Spider-Man No Way Home, our little multiverse Spider-Man movie that uh, brought Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire over from the previous Spider-Man series. And uh, you and I both had really positive feelings about this movie. I think it's uh, fair to say, though, that if we you know have any legitimate criticism, it probably is that the movie is very male-centric, right? I mean, there's not a lot of female characters. You have your Aunt May and you have your MJ, and that is pretty much it. And One of whom was that, killed off. Yeah, and considering that uh, this is sort of a multiverse movie, there was always a bit of a disappointment going on that we didn't get a glimpse of uh, Kirsten Dunst as Mary Jane Watson, or maybe an alternate version of uh, Aunt May and all of this, that there was, you know, more character fun to be had there that was kind of left laying on the table. Um, and it turns out that uh, we're not the only ones that feel that way. Uh, screenwriters Chris McKenna and Eric uh, Summers um, have confirmed in a, a new book MCU, The Reign of Marvel Studios, that Kirsten Dunst's Mary Jane Watson um, uh, was in the script at one point, as were uh, Sally Field, Aunt May, from the Andrew uh, Garfield version of Spider-Man, as well as Gwen Stacy, Emma Stone. Uh, They were all supposed to make appearances in some capacity. Now, with the Gwen Stacy of it all, they were not clear if that was some kind of flashback or what was going on there, but the original script apparently included all of those characters. The writers, however, according to the entry in the book, felt that they were starting to overdo it with cameos, and then that led to the ultimate axing of Mary Jane, Aunt May, and Gwen Stacy in the movie. Um, So here is the quote. Summers and McKenna at various points wrote versions of the story that incorporated Emma Stone's Gwen Stacy, Kirsten Dunst's Mary Jane Watson, and Sally Field's Aunt May, but ultimately cut all those women when they decided that the story was already overstuffed. The only female characters with significant screen time would be Marissa Tomei's Aunt May and Zendaya's MJ. Because the screenplay was constantly in flux, none of the actors could read a locked script, and they joined the project based on their faith in... uh, Marvel Studios president Kevin Feige, producer Amy Pascal, and director John Watts. And of course, in the lead up to the movie, both uh, you know Emma Stone and Kirsten Dunst were asked multiple times if they'd be making an appearance, and they denied that. Um, I think the only other real relevant quote here to consider is probably Feige uh, back in 2021 when he was talking to the New York Times about the movie. Uh, he said, when people see the movie, they will understand. It's about the story. It was a big goal for all of us. That Peter Parker's senior year in high school didn't get lost amid the insanity that ensues thanks to his encounter with Doctor Strange. That could easily have happened, and that's the reason there's not another 20 people in the movie. Um, 
So on the one hand, I understand that, you know, this wasn't supposed to turn into a complete cameo fest on the one hand. Um, on the other hand, I think that there are opportunities that are definitely left on the table by not including uh, these additional characters. For one, um, as I mentioned at the top, you know, a, a little bit more of a female perspective here would have been uh, extremely welcome, considering that there are two female characters, one of them and, and one of them gets killed off and the other one gets mind wiped. I mean, it's not it's not a good movie for the female perspective. It would have also been very interesting uh, for uh, another Aunt May to kind of bounce off of Marissa Tomei's Aunt May. And I think it would have been um, particularly interesting for um, MCU Spider-Man to kind of see the, the different incarnation of MJ out there and for, they to, for there to be sort of an MJ-MJ interaction. I think there were things that could have been done that would have enriched the story, I guess, um, rather than made it feel like a cameo fest. I think... You know, I think there's just a lack of understanding in how to incorporate these characters because they happen to be, you know, I don't know, female characters. Like, I don't know. I, like, it seems to me to be a fairly obvious way how those could have been incorporated in a better way in this movie rather than just cutting them outright. So I, I guess for a movie that I really enjoyed, this element of it, I found extremely disappointing. Now, not speaking of Gwen Stacy here, because besides having some kind of flashback, I don't know exactly how they would have went about that. Um, but, but having MJ and, and another version of Aunt May here, I think would have been very, very interesting to how the characters interacted and a real lost opportunity, Chris. Yeah, I think there was also another quote that came out of that, that it was like this ever-changing type of thing, and you could kind of see that, like, that Maguire and Garfield weren't even confirmed until, like, a couple of months before some kind of deadline. I can't remember. I don't have the page in front of me right now, and that feels very, very kind of apropos to what we saw at the final product. Um, I think this movie... I would I would not have wanted to be involved with this movie from a directorial standpoint. I do not envy John Watts. I don't envy Kevin Feige. Um, based on the expectations that this movie had, and I'm surprised I enjoyed it as much as I did. I think it's fair to say, Chris, that it, I I describe this movie as sort of a beautiful mess. You know, yes. like it's a very it's a very messy movie that, by all accounts, should not have come together as well as it did. Um, but it did come together fairly well in the end, I think. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, you're bringing back, you know, Tobey Maguire is the more critically acclaimed Spider-Man. You and I hold a candle out for, for Andrew Garfield's portrayal. Any day um, of the week. Yeah, I think so. That's my preference. But... So you have a lot of nostalgia addicts that are, oh my God, Tobey Maguire's coming back. Um, you have this juxtaposed with the wildly over-expectation performance of Into the Spider-Verse across, of course, had not been released yet. So you have that as like a, a really unfair watermark to compare yourself against. Um, so they did not want to go down the live action Spider-Verse lane, which I think was probably for the best. I agree with that. Um, so yeah, this is an unenviable task in so many different ways. Um, kind of kind of just sitting back and let you read that and kind of wash it over. I don't think, I think it would have been, I think it's addition by subtraction, not having Gwen Stacy in there as great as Emma Stone was in that role and that performance, I think it, I think it, it just would not have fit and it would just have added to the trauma of it all. Um, I would, anytime I see Sally field on my screen, it's the best. Um, I, I love that woman to the moon and back. I think she's perfect in that role. We have, we have no shortage of great aunt Mays and I, I ride for Marissa Tomei. I think that's a, an interesting take on the character. Yes, we want to make memes about the hot Aunt May and everything, but it's a pretty realistic, you know, 21st century take on what a single aunt raising her nephew would look like in the 2020s. You know, I think it's pretty realistic. Um, so 
I mean, I would have loved to see Lily Tomlin. I, I think Lily Tomlin might even be my favorite. Rosemary Harris is impeccable. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the one story that needed a little more for me was Tobey Maguire's. And I don't know if adding MJ to that does it, but he needed a little bit of something. We had like the back problem jokes and everything. We had the jokes around the organic web shooters. Uh, I think Garfield had uh, a great arc and the Garfield fans like yourself, yourself and me, we were like, finally he gets good material to work with. Um, the Hayden Christensen of the of the Spider Man exactly movies. <laughs> a perfect perfect uh, a perfect analogy um, yeah so I don't I don't know I I feel like I'm like again I'm surprised it worked as well as it did and I think the the reason that it's a beautiful mess and the fact that it worked is on the strength of the performances whole stop full stop I think McGuire brought it I Garfield I knew he was going to bring it he always brings it. Holland brought it. Holland really acted his took us off. And Willem Dafoe was out of his mind, as always. Just so method, so perfect. Um, and then, you know, even Marissa Tomei, uh, everybody was cooking in this movie. Zendaya was cooking in this movie. Uh, and so I think plot-wise, that's probably the greatest criticism you could throw at this movie. But the performances just carry it over the top for me, and it, and it gives it a rewatchable value for me. And it's really interesting to me that, um, and and I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a little fanboy for a second here. Um, although you know Spider Man Two with with Tobey Maguire in particular is is held up to a great pedestal and is a really good movie and was a great experience in the theater and everything, um, and was sort of the pinnacle of what you could do with a Spider Man movie at the time. Um, you know he's in the long run, probably not my favorite Spider-Man performance. And I think a lot of that comes from that very, the Sam Raimi-isms in those movies um, where they, they almost go a little too, um, a little too cheesy with the Peter Parker character, as opposed to trying to be a little realistic with him. And and now that I have, now that I have more context for Sam Raimi, that makes all the more sense to me. Yeah. But, I will say this after after No Way Home, although there were a lot of people writing for another Andrew Garfield Spider Man, and I will admit that would be that would be great to see him in that role, you know, one more time and to kind of be able to put a bow on on what he did with the character. Um, I would really ride for a a Tobey Maguire Kirsten Dunst Spider Man sequel where we revisit the character, you know, as they're older, you know, further down in their journey, sort of a sort of a Peter B. B. Parker version of what's going on with, with those characters. And it's really sad because one of the quotes that I read, you know, when, when Kirsten Dunst was asked about whether she's involved in no way home, she said something to the effect and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but she said something to the effect of, yeah, they don't want the old girls in there, you know? And, and I find that super regrettable because checking in with that version of Mary Jane and that version of Peter Parker later on in their journey and having a, you know, a movie about them would I would actually really, really want to see that. I would be super interested in, in seeing a, a Spider-Man 4, if you will, um, more so than anything else after watching No Way Home. I think, um, I think I'm think i more fascinated by that. I'm going to be real with you. I think this was Tobey Maguire's strongest performance as Spider-Man in that role. I think even with Spider-Man 2, I think he is outshined by Alfred Molina who I neglected to mention as well. And this movie is, is great. It's Alfred great. Molina will eat your breakfast. Anytime mm-hmm. you put him in a movie, yep. like, holy smokes, dude. Yep. Even, even the, the few moments he's in Raiders of the lost Ark, like he's great. Oh, in that so good. <laughs> um, dude is a little package of charisma. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And so I think I also would be more interested because I love Kirsten Dunst. There's a lot of roles that she just devours in as well. Like I love her in Jumanji. Um, as this little smart aleck whippersnapper type of kid. Um, I just think that she was more Gwen and I'll, I'll, I'll say this to the cows come home. She had more qualities of Gwen Stacy than she did of Mary Jane. I think it was just a a misnomer. I think she was much more Gwen than she was MJ and a little bit, a little bit vice versa with, with, with Emma, Emma Stone uh, as Gwen Stacy for being honest, she was a little more MJ and she was Gwen. 
So I feel like it was a little bit of a Freaky Friday swap, if you will. Um, But I would be much more interested to revisit those characters now. And especially, I think what worked for me the best about Tobey Maguire in this movie is he is not handcuffed to that 70s era Lee Ramita aesthetic that the Raimi trilogy went for. And that I is think exactly that, right. I think that was to its detriment. It worked in the first one and it was fine, but I think the more that we kind of committed to that kind of moment in time, I think it was to its detriment. And so I'm, I t- I'd be I, much I, more I t- interested. I tell you, I tell you what, what I think happened, at least you know, I'm speculating, but if you look at the the Richard Donner Superman movie, right, they were going for a very specific vibe with that very, you know, sort of pre pre crisis Superman, sort of, you know, in the, a very in the very specific and it, and, uh, 70, 76? Is it was seventy eight, yeah, seventy eight. But it felt more like um, I think Superman comic books maybe from the fifties, right? Mm-hmm. It very much right. tried to cap- capture a, a vibe of Superman, but at the same time, it also tried to be timeless in that right so the idea is by not stooping it too much in 1978 modern day sensibilities you would create a fairly timeless movie and i think for the most part they succeeded in that there's some moments in there that are that are not timeless but on the whole the movie feels timeless and i think that's what sam raimi was going for too he thought he by, by steeping it in a very specific snapshot of the character he would be able to achieve a kind of timelessness and i don't think it worked nearly as well with the mcguire spider-man movies i think they're not timeless in fact they feel very aged now um and i think a, a different a different approach um with those same characters now might be able to achieve a more timeless quality um because i i don't think you know and we talked about this before when we tried to you know quote-unquote fix them but i don't think or revisit them um i don't think they aged necessarily as well as something like superman the movie has do you think they would even approach this without raimi though i don't know um i think that is probably a fair question Uh, i think it's fair to say that uh marvel is 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 okay with Raimi considering you know Doctor Strange in a multiverse of madness which is, which is heavily maligned and I don't get it I really dug that movie I dug it too uh, but again it's it's it there's a lot of Sam Raimiisms in there but it works in that context um so you know I think the best way to describe the Sam Raimiisms that are in in the Spider-Man uh, movies is to not look to his horror stuff, but to look to like Hercules legendary journeys or Xena warrior princess that Sam Raimi showed up to make the Spider-Man movies, right? Including, so a- including, including Lucy Lawless guy with eight legs. Sounds hot. Yeah. So it's, um, I don't want. I, I don't want to harp on on the movies because they were great. They're they're great movies, and and I enjoyed them a great deal when they came out. Um, but I am very interested after No Way Home. I would love to see those characters on on the big screen one more time in sort of a Peter B. Parker situation, sort of checking no, with you know, middle aged Spider Man and roll with it. Let's say the harsh truth, Dave. Let's say why we want to see that. It's because that's what Marvel Comics won't let us have. Is a Spider-Man that grows, develops, and ages a little bit. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I'm. I feel like we're cu- we're coming up soon on an episode where we're going to be talking Spidey, state of Spidey, or something. Like we keep we keep scratching at it, and I know you and I don't see a hundred percent eye to eye on the topic, but I, I feel like we're coming just, to that. Just Ben Riley episode. Just Ben Riley. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let's move on to uh, Star Wars. <laughs> Chris, you have a... Uh, there's, there's, uh, do, do I need to get my trusty pen ready? Because there's already a bleep-worthy word just in, in oh, our document I'm gonna here. I'm going to try and do my best. I'm trying to do my best. But the Guinness here might do the talking. Um, yeah, so Matthew Vaughn won't stop talking. <laughs> and this is a problem that's very common yeah <laughs> yeah and, and 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 in some cases it was beneficial uh for those of you that don't know matthew vaughn did the kingsman films which i have not seen but i've heard are good um he also did the reboot as it were 
of X-Men First Class, which for the most part was a good film. Um, the Darwin of it all still makes me angry all these years later. But at the same time, that one Magneto scene where he's in Argentina and Nazi hunting is one of the best scenes in any comic book movie. And which is hard to say when you're talking about an X-Men movie, you want to talk about how bad DC films are. Try being an X-Men fan, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but, but, um, he really kind of, uh, dropped another. Oh, so the, the one that we did not talk about on last episode that was of note is when they tricked Halle Berry into joining X-Men three. Um, there was a story with a, with us, with a script that they had written that included yeah. more scenes, really good scenes for her. And then they cut them all. First they had no intention of right. ever filming them. Jesus. Right. So that made headlines, um, a couple weeks back. Uh, but the one that we're talking about today is he was on the happy, sad, confused podcast. And they asked him about star Wars. And he said, quote, for me, doing a star Wars movie is to play with the characters that I love. So if they said to me, do you want to reboot Star Wars and actually have Luke Skywalker, Solo, and Vader, and you do your own version of it, everyone would say you're an idiot to try, but that would excite me. Uh, That'd be fun. Why not? Bond, you ask me, who is going to play the next Wolverine? Why are these characters so hallowed that from 1977, you can't redo it for a new audience? Star Wars is the Skywalker family. And that's where I think they've gone wrong because they've forgotten and they've done brilliantly in the TV world. But it needs an epic new film, and that's what I would do, end quote. And holy God, if I hear the word reboot one more time, like, we have to stop rebooting everything. Like, I'm good with the reboot. Even the most recent Ninja Turtles film, Mutant Madness, um, or is it Mutant Mayhem? I can't remember. But anyways, like, it, it wasn't even a full reboot. Like, the origin story was very quick and... It was very much like an alternate universe kind of retelling. And then we just like focus on like the main points of the story. Like I'm good with reboots. I don't think I ever need another reboot. Like people have seen people go back to the original trilogy of Star Wars and watch it again and again and again. We don't need a retread of like the hallowed ground that is the original trilogy. And I think something that Star Wars fans of a certain age need to realize and are realizing if they're opening their minds to the idea is the prequels have a section of fandom that were children, you know, and that were kids when those grew up and, or they grew up with them and they were, that's their original trilogy and that's okay. And as, as maligned as the sequel trilogy is, there are fans of it and we've had our criticisms of it. We've, we've, you know, applied our fixes to it. And so I think that the most egregious thing about this is him saying that the Skywalkers are Star Wars. Like you can't go past that. Like that is one of the, I'm sorry, it's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. So, and you have now talked about this ad nauseum recast. Yes. Reboot. Hell no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So, um, I think we're going to have to accept at some point uh, that not everything needs to be rebooted. Like, um, you know, Star Wars is is certainly a, a seminal franchise, right? And and the original trilogy in particular is one of the most influential pieces of cinema, in, you know, ever. But we're going to have to discuss at some point that uh, not you know nobody's talking about rebooting Hamlet. I hope, um, right? Like, we can leave. A piece of art and stand it, let it stand by on its own. That doesn't mean that you can't make sequels or additions. Even if you want to talk about like something that Boz Lerman did with Romeo plus Juliet, that was still at its core the same thing. It just went yes. through a different lens, and it was fantastic. I love Romeo plus Juliet. Love it. But just but just retelling the original trilogy story, I don't know, man. I would rather you know, like you said, we've talked about this a lot. But a, a recast to create additions are much more interesting to me. You know, like I would love for them to recast the core three in a similar way as they uh, you know recast for the Star Trek uh, you know movies, and then just like tell a story like Heir to the Empire or something like that. You know, like. I think there are things to do there. Uh, you know, reading the uh, the Star Wars comic books that Marvel ha- has been putting out, especially the run that took place between um, A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back, there was really good stuff in there, you know? Like, that kind of thing as a TV series or as an additional movie, I, I can get behind. 
uh, with good casting and care being put into it. But, you know, like, let's reboot Star Wars because I don't, you know, I want to put my own spin on it. Like, it's just so lazy. Like, come up with something original. I don't know, man. I just, I, I, I don't like the idea of, of constantly rebooting. I'm interested in interesting sequels and furthering a story, absolutely. But constantly going back and just like, I'm going to retell this again. Yeah, I'm going to reboot this again. Why, why is our tendency in, in society to reboot successful things? And when something fails, you just let it fail and linger. Like there are so many things out there that at its core had a cool premise, but then just didn't work in execution. Like take one of those and reboot it. That'd be much more interesting to me than rebooting something that was successful. It it literally makes no sense to me. Other than you like are getting high on your own supply and like you think that you are so above everybody else. Like I, I can't understand why you think you need to reboot the original trilogy like i i don't get it all right that wraps nerd news for this week when we come back we will be headed for our byword big talk and the comic book solicits for january 2024 stick around all right welcome back to the main segment for this episode we like to call it our byword And for this episode, we are looking ahead to the January 2024 solicits for comic books. We have each highlighted three that we cannot wait to read. Dave, what is first up on your list? And of course, you're going off the beaten path. Don't I always, though? Isn't that just like par the course when you're hanging out with me and reading comics? There's always something weird going on. Um, so as far as January goes, there's a miniseries launching from Oni Press that I immediately found very interesting. Um, the series is called Jill and the Killers. It's a four-issue miniseries. Number one is solicited for January 2024. It's written by Olivia Guatero Briggs with art by Roberta in Granada. And I think that's already interesting because we have a, a female creative team, both on art and on writing, and a female main character. So this is already good in my book. However, uh, with my horror tendencies, you better believe that uh, there's some scary going on here. So uh, here is uh, our official solicitation. A double-sized and dangerous 48-page debut. Olivia Guatero Briggs, who apparently wrote Mary Shelley Monster Hunter, by the way, sounds interesting immediately, and I need to check that out. And Roberta in Granada, who did work on Witchblade and Doctor Who, uh, present a new kind of game where even murder is much more than it seems. Returning to school after the unsolved disappearance of her mother, teenager Jill Estrada can't wait for things to return to normal, even as her friends become compulsively obsessed with Box Killers, a true crime subscription game where each month's unsolved case is custom-tailored to the life of its player. There's only one catch. Jill's game seems to be all too real, and when her clues begin to connect to a series of disappearances in her town, Jill and her friends must uncover the truth behind these mysterious crimes before one of their own becomes the next victim. So we have uh, the book comes out on January 31st, 2024, 48 pages, so it's a double-sized issue and is retailing at uh, $6.99. Um, Art looks absolutely gorgeous. Um, nice colors in the in the covers, uh, as far as I can see here. Um, I'm very, very interested in sort of the art style that's represented here. It's sort of realistic, but has sort of a, a slight cartoony edge over it, I think. Um, most importantly, though, I think I've never heard quite anything like this. I mean, we've seen horror stories that involve some kind of game or another, but this seems to kind of... Um, I guess, connect with the idea of like subscription boxes. And there's been so many of those that were extremely, you know, uh, popular, various themes. Um, you know, you get you get a box of goodies once a month, stuff like Loot Crate and, and, and the like. So doing this as a true crime game and then tying it into reality in some way, I think that's a really interesting premise. Um, I'm really, really interested in this one, Chris. I, I think there's really something here. Um, enough that I'm interested to go and check out uh, Mary Shelley Monster Hunter while I'm waiting for this to come out in January. Yeah, this is fascinating. And it's capitalizing really smartly on popular things like true crime podcasts and and subscription boxes that are, are still a thing. Like we 
for a couple of years, we had snack crate where we would, they would have like a country per month and they would send snacks from that country. And so that was like a cool way to like kind of introduce the family to, to different parts of the world and their different tastes and what we liked, what we didn't like. And, um, and stuff like that. So that's it's really fascinating kind of capitalizing on on both of those kind of elements and and creating a a captivating looking story on that. Yeah, um, like I said, uh you know, as far as the art goes too, it's it's you know, the covers uh look very very good. So if interior art matches with that, you know, that's a big win. Uh really big fan of the art right away. Um and you know, it's it's hard to be original when it comes to you know suspense and scary stuff these days. So I think I think this one has something. And only ge- generally speaking, Oni Press is a publisher that always does something interesting that seems to fly under the radar. Like they have a series right now with Colin Bunn, for example, um, that uh, they have the second issue solicited for January, and I've not even heard of this thing. Um, it called invasive. Um, so they're always doing something interesting. And yet at the same time, I always seem to kind of miss out on a lot of this stuff. And I think I need to just have a better eye on what Oni is doing, generally speaking, Chris. All right. So what is your first pick from the January solicitations? Listen, you, uh, you must, you, you might think I'm a company man because all four or, or all three of mine are, are coming from my beloved Marvel. But I mean, it's 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 just home to me, and so it's the first place I look, and first place I go. I'll I'll stray and go with the Boom Studios book, which there's one. Uh, they're soliciting the 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 fifth issue of Rare Flavors, which we've already reviewed on the podcast, and I plan to continue reading. But um, as far as new stuff that kind of caught my eye, I'm going first and foremost with the Resurrection of Magneto by Al Ewing, and our first ever creative interview, Luciano Vecchio on art. So this is a this is a great team, and I'm already hooked just because of that. Um, not to mention, it's one of my all-time favorite characters in comics being brought back to life. And with the current state of X-Comics, like, I don't have a whole lot to look forward to. Um, you want to you want to talk about Spider-Man comics like, uh, yeah, Krakoa is done and over with. Like, and I don't know what the the regression to the mean is going to entail, but I'm definitely not looking forward to it. I've been kind of off base reading X-Comics for the better part of two months, and I'm not exactly excited to get caught up. But um, Al Ewing is just one of those creators that I'll follow wherever he goes. And sadly, this is... Uh, what what appears to be his grand finale writing for the X office. So this might be one of the final like mainstays of me reading X comics, like religiously, like I have been like, I, I, you know, I'm open to being surprised, pleasant, pleasantly surprised, but doesn't look great for X comics as it goes right now. But uh, the solicitation reads life death on Krakoa resurrection from the dead was as easy as completing a circuit. But Krakoa fell. The time of easy miracles is over, and the only hard roads, and only the hard roads are left. Now it falls to storm as the epic conclusion to the Krakoan age looms, to bring their oldest enemy home to fight against the fall of the House of X. But after all he did and all that was done to him, can Magneto bear to return? So, um, it's it's almost like I'm I'm looking forward to reading this because it's it's Al Ewing, it's Magneto, it's Storm. Um, but at the same time, it's a, it's a bittersweet kind of thing. And I'm interested to, and intrigued, but a little bit saddened by the, by everything, all the, uh, extenuating factors of it. Yeah. So, uh, on the back of the creative team alone, I think that there's probably a really quality story here. Um, we've talked about before how I'm sort of X-Men agnostic, you know, every once in a while something comes along that catches my attention, but for the most part, it's not, you know, a franchise that necessarily grabs me. Uh, the upheaval that it's going through right now has not really helped. Um, even, you know, in with the uh, Kamala Khan of it all, I've been reading the new Miss Marvel series, but it's, it's you know, firmly entrenched in this whole fall of X idea and, we're, you know, the, the idea of going back to them being, you know, persecuted and not having a place to turn to and all that. Um, it feels very sort of done before. Uh, I'm pretty sure Magneto has died and come back before too. Um so on on the on the back of the creative team, it looks interesting to me. But uh, beyond that, I'm you know pretty unsure if I'm going to get a whole lot of, out of this particular story. 
yeah, for sure. It's something, and isn't that... and isn't there not 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 to interrupt, but isn't there also already a, a, like a Magneto clone running around or something? I seem to recall seeing that character pop up in um, in Scarlet Witch, I think. So I there's like something. I go- believe that's Joseph. That's an old '90s callback, but. When it comes to Wanda, uh, you want to talk about agnostic. That's a character I'm agnostic about. <laughs> I, I will say, um, you know, I have not the background in the character that you do. However, the current Scarlet Witch series has been a absolute home run. As somebody who, you know, is not entrenched in particular opinions about the character based on past experiences, um, that that comic book is ridiculous, man. The art is, is gorgeous. The writing is, you know, sharp as attack. I mean, it's, it's really, really something. Um, I've really enjoyed it. And I've heard similar things from, from my fellow X fans. So I may one day give it a look, maybe when it's at its completion, I'll just binge through it. Cause I've heard great things as well. Um, I think they're going to relaunch it next year, um, as a team team up book between her and her brother Quicksilver. So, um, but I think the creative team is still going to be the same. So, yeah. So it's it's definitely something I'll probably will have to eventually check out, even if I'm dragged kicking and screaming. Um, I just always I just always look at Wanda with apprehension and kind of squinted eyes of suspicion. Uh, it's just I'm not a oh dude, dude that redesign alone. Oh my god, man, there's just good stuff there. All right, so one of our favorite publishers, Dave. Uh, unsurprisingly, uh, gets the next uh, book on your list. Boom goes to Dynamite. Now, obviously, there's more, uh, you know, um, something is killing the children, House of Slaughter stuff coming, so I can't, you know, argue with that. But the thing that really caught my eye this time is a a new series that's launching called Pine and Merrimack. Uh, Writers Kyle Starks, uh, Eisner-nominated writer, uh, also uh, recently wrote for DC a miniseries Peacemaker Tries Hard that kind of aligned uh, the Peacemaker character a little bit more with the te- with the television show, I think, um, and was, you know, quite good from a writing perspective. Um, this is uh, Kyle Stark's first original series. Um, also features art by Fran Galan. Uh, I thought that name sounded familiar and I had to kind of look, uh, look up this artist and he actually did some work um, on the uh, Spider-Man Beyond arc that you and I both enjoyed fairly well, although I didn't really like the ending that much. Um, but, uh, you know, there were two issues, I think, and that's where I remembered the name from. So solid art, absolutely top to bottom. Um, so here is the official solicitation. On the corner of Pine and Merrimack sits a small, unassuming town, Just a simple place, simple people, and one horrifying secret that could change everything. After a lifetime of witnessing the worst that humanity has to offer, former homicide detective Linnea Kent has decided to put all that behind her. Alongside her husband, a former professional MMA fighter, and the unofficial brawn to her brains, she's moved far from the busy city to open up a quiet little detective agency. At first, the simple cases this nook of the world has to offer were exactly what she was looking for, but there's more to the quaint hamlet than Linnea could have possibly imagined and something truly sinister pulling the strings. So uh, this is an unexpected detective tale perfect for readers of Reckless and the Department of Truth. Uh, the release date is January 3rd, 2024. Retail price is $4.99. Um, so obviously on the back of the writer being somebody I'm aware of and has been Eisner nominated, but it's not somebody that I would consider a household name at this time. I'm very much interested in reading this. I, I'm, I'm always interested in you know finding writers that are doing interesting work. Um, and it may not be like uh, the go-to name that you nat- naturally just right away pick something up. And then Fran Gallant's work at, on Amazing Spider-Man during the Beyond arc, I really, really liked. And if you look at uh, the Fran Gallant cover, there's definitely a really, really interesting art style here. So I am definitely all about this one, Chris. Yeah, it looks really fascinating. It almost looks like one of those USA shows uh, that we used to watch where like there was... Like, it just feels like that type of aesthetic, maybe like even like an AMC, like this feels like a, like a a television series in comic book form. And it's really, really intriguing and, and detective stuff like that always is going to catch my interest more on that later. It's definitely a character's welcome situation. So what is uh, your second pick, Chris? 
Um, I'm going solely based off of the creative team on this, but I'm going Avengers Twilight by Chip Zdarsky and um, uh, Daniel Acuna. In a gleaming world, uh, excuse me, in a gleaming new world of prosperity, Captain America is no more, but Steve Rogers still exists, floating through an America where freedom is an illusion, where the Avengers are strangers and his friends are long dead, but is the dream. How do you assemble Avengers in a world that doesn't want them? Um, And then the second issue is being solicited as well. With the clock ticking to New Year's Day and the world against him, Captain America must build an army to save America. Will his surviving friends sign up, or is he going to have to lead the the ragtag group called the Defenders against the expert military marksman known as Bullseye? Um, and based off like how much I've enjoyed Chip Zdarsky's run on Spectacular Spider-Man, uh, his work on Daredevil, um, and then Daniel Acuna, like I, Daniel Acuna draws my dreamscape. Like what he did with um, Black Panther and the Galactic Empire of Wakanda, that whole volume of Black Panther is just like some of the most gorgeous stuff that you'll ever see. And this like kind of watercolor aesthetic is just just impeccable to me and so i know that like a lot of future dystopia type of stuff has been done before but the solicitation the creative team it's it's enough to tip the scales for me and i'm definitely checking this one out yeah so a post-apocalyptic kind of avenger story really uh anything where steve rogers has to be inspirational is going to be good by me the creative team looks really interesting too um so yeah i'm definitely going to check this out um obviously out of continuity stories hit and miss right uh sometimes you get really good stuff and sometimes you don't but chip sadarsky has impressed me so much with his daredevil run even if his batman run doesn't quite hit the same highs to me i think it's just that's a really really solid writer and so where chip goes i follow dave i'm really excited to talk about your next one because it's a writer that i've seen the best of and i've seen the not so best of but it's a character that is your all-time fave. Oh my God, how can I not talk about Superman? Uh, the Superman books have really just been hitting all the right notes over the last few months, and I'm so enjoying the ride. And now they're they're <laughs> now they're bringing in Jason Aaron uh, in January uh, as of Action Comics 1061. Jason Aaron is going to be writing Action Comics uh, with art by John Timms. And let me tell you, the John Timms cover already. Uh, showing Superman fly towards the reader with Bizarro coming up behind him is absolutely stunning. So I'm very, very excited for this book. There's also, I have to say it, a beautiful variant cover uh, by um, Jorge Jimenez uh, that shows, uh, you know, Lois kind of getting uh, Superman up against the wall a little bit and getting a little frisky. And it's 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 hilarious and very Lois, and I absolutely love it. And it's one of the first... Um, variant covers in a long time that I almost feel like going and picking up. Um, It's just a very, very lowest lane cover, I guess you could say. But more interestingly, Aaron uh, looks to be coming out swinging right away uh, and trying to do something interesting uh, with uh, Superman's villains. So here is the solicitation text. The Wizard Bizarro. Jason Aaron writes Superman for the very first time, teaming up with all-star artist John Timms to present a startling new vision of the Man of Steel's strangest foe. When Superman's doppelganger discovers a dark secret about himself, it unleashes the most dangerous version of Bizarro the world has ever seen. Bizarro is a really interesting character that has had so many different interpretations and versions already. So seeing a different take on him that can take him to a different level would be really interesting. Aaron also has written arguably one of my favorite Thor runs. Um, So that is already, I think, a really good sign for this. And I know his Avengers work is a little more controversial and not nearly as well loved. But I think uh, Aaron might excel a little bit at sort of solo character stuff more than than team books. And so seeing him on Superman uh, ought to be a, a really, really interesting ride. <clears throat> and I think the current run has been doing a really, really good job also playing around with Superman's villains a little bit already. Uh, the reinvention of Parasite kind of evolving him a little bit was very interesting. The the setup that Lex Luthor is in jail, but he's now trying to be a good guy and is trying to actually help Superman, maybe, if he's not got some other 
plan going on. There are very interesting things happening with the villains already. So uh, extending that to Bizarro is right away, I think, a really good move. And shows, I think, that uh, Aaron has a really good shot here of fitting in well uh, with what they're already doing right now in the Superman books. So I'm I'm very optimistic about this one, Chris. Yeah, I'm really intrigued by this, and I, I think you may be kind of um hitting the nail on the head when it comes to solo characters versus a team book. I, I will I will admit I read about half of his Avengers run and I enjoyed it more than I anticipated. Like I can see what he was going for. And the one thing that I'll say about Jason Aaron is he swings for the fences. If you'll if you'll uh, excuse a sports reference, I know baseball is the one sport that you kind of have a little bit of time for. He's he's a big slugger. Like he's either going to hit a home run or strike out swinging. Like he's just not going to go for a bunt. He's not going to go for a single or a double. It's either home run or nothing. And so I see what he was he was ambitious and what he was going for with his Avengers run. And sometimes it landed and sometimes it did not. So I'm I'm still a fan and I'm I'm definitely intrigued on this. I need to get caught up on my Superman comics because I really enjoyed that first one and I'm absolutely entranced by Marilyn Moonlight. And so I just, I'm just honestly just need to read for her, if nothing else. And I think in the solicits over in the Superman book, there's a big Marilyn Moonlight story actually coming up in January as well. So, so there, there's just good stuff on the horizon for Superman. It's a very nice time to be a Superman fan. All right, Chris, what is your final pick? Well, I thought you might want dibs on this one, but you said, go ahead. So we've talked about this a couple of times on the show already, but it needs as much spotlight as possible because we're super excited about it. It's Ultimate Spider-Man. Um, our solicit is visionary writer Jonathan Hickman and acclaimed artist Marco uh, Cicchetto bring you a bold new take on Spider-Man with this, the debut title of the new line of Ultimate Comics. After the events of Ultimate Evasion, the world needs a hero who will rise up to take on that responsibility. Be uh, prepared to be entangled in a web of mystery and excitement as the all-new Ultimate Spider-Man comic redefines the wall crawler for the 21st century. That's a pretty intriguing one. And we kind of talked about this a little bit when it popped up in our news stories uh, previously. But if they're not going to let 616 Peter grow the F up, hopefully this line will. Um, for the 21st century, like that, that line alone gives me kind of hope. Um, and I mean, like the, the artwork, the covers they're doing, they've got some really great, great variant covers um, that I, I'm, I'm digging. And and as you said, I'm not a physical comic person, really. Um, I just kind of have them sitting on a shelf. But some of these covers may kind of swing me the other way. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of looking towards getting some of these. Also with something as special to me as Ultimate Spider-Man is, I may go down to the LCS and, and grab a couple of these. Um, I'm just really, really excited on... I, I think I, I still hold like the, the Hickman of it all as this gigantic world builder telling stories across multiple titles, across multiple years being on a street level character not cosmic not reality warping with franklin richards not completely shaking the table like house of x powers of 10 i'm really interested to see where he goes with this yeah um first of all uh i don't know if i ever mentioned this to you but i uh when the first ultimate spider-man comic book launched i was not back in the comic books yet i ended up in a comic book shop uh months later um and i think the first issue that i actually picked up was amazing it was ultimate spider-man number 13 i think so the entire first year of the run I don't own in single issues. I have the entire run in single issues and then the first two trade paperbacks. And it kind of still breaks my heart to this day because I cannot complete that collection ever. Those issues are so expensive on the collector's market. You can forget that, right? And so this might be one I have to pick up physically just just in case um, this becomes one of those books that I absolutely adore. Uh, I would would absolutely hate not to be able to to complete the run as I did, for example, with like Ron Mars' Green Lantern. I got that entire run. 
um that that you know i'm not much of a collector but when you when i really love a story i'd like to have the the entire story you know so uh yeah i'm again there's not a lot a lot known at this time about this all we really know is it's a new ultimate universe we don't even know if this is really peter parker or not we all we know is that this is um you know a Peter B. Parker situation as in sort of a, an older Spider-Man likely. Um, and we've speculated before, given that uh, in Ultimate Invasion, there was a scene where the maker prevented the spider from biting Peter Parker as a teenager and took the spider, that maybe the setup of the book is that the spider actually will bite Peter Parker later in life, right? When he's already in middle age. And it's a uh, an inexperienced hero who's not a teenager, but fully grown and, and has to kind of figure out how to integrate the super heroics into his life. And I think that that would be interesting. But there's a possibility that it's not Peter Parker and all the variant covers show, you know, different versions too. sort of, I was just going to ask you if there's, I was just going to ask you if there's anything to read into that. Cause it, there are three very, three of the four variant covers are variations on the main cover. And so you have Spider-Man yes. 2099, you have very clearly a Ben Riley Spider-Man and then the black suit Spider-Man. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I think that they're leaning into the speculation of who this is, and they're definitely keeping their mouth shut some uh, shut on purpose, right? I think that's you know, there's a lot of speculation, a lot there is excitement among people who wish that you know mainline Peter Parker would do a little bit of growing up, and the quote that this is sort of a middle age situation. But on the flip side, this could be an entirely new character. This could be an alternate version of a different character. We really don't know what we're getting here yet, and even if it's not an alternate version of Peter Parker. It could still end up being very, very interesting, right? It could still be a very good story. Um, For this one, I'm definitely going to pick it up because I want to see how it shakes out, but I'm also going to take a wait-and-see approach a little bit. Um, It's hard hard to tell how this is going to turn out. And I think it's fair to feel that way because I think when Ultimate Spider-Man first came out, um, there was also a lot of skepticism because it wasn't that long ago that they had tried to do sort of a, a soft quote-unquote relaunch oh the john byrne oh the john byrne yes oh yes not great not so, great so, yeah and so doing a quote-unquote you know relaunch of a character and you know going back to the beginning and everything is not necessarily something that people always trust right so i'm i'm cautiously optimistic optimistic and very interested but we'll have to see uh you know how it shakes out I think similarly to the no way home of it all, like this is not an enviable task. You know, ultimate Spider-Man is, is, is hallowed ground for a lot of people. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to give this a shot based on, you know, the creative team, because we could talk about Hickman to the day to, you know, until the cows come home, but Marco Cicchetto and like what he was able to do on dark on daredevil and specifically with Electra's hair, like I'll, I'll watch that dude. Uh, draw anything man so the creative team alone has me there um i don't like i have i'm going to temper my expectations on this i'm not going to let nostalgia kind of color my view on that that's something that i always try to kind of keep in check Uh, but at the same time i don't think that this is like a direction they would go in unless they had like a strong feeling about the quality of the story that they wanted to tell like i don't think this is like this is pretty much like a sacred cow and i don't know that they would go back into this area unless they had a a good story to tell we we would hope um this is also not under spider editorial right like the ultimate the new ultimate line is not connected to spider editorial i think last time i checked so this would be the first time in quite a while that spidey uh, a you know a spidey is not being edited by nick lowe so if i understood if 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 i got if i got my facts right thank the maker if that's the case (laughs) if i if i got my facts right um i i know there's been some speculation about that and i guess we'll know 100 percent for sure when we open the book and see who's listed as editor um but my understanding was that the new ultimate line was not under the purview of the spider office which i think is really interesting It'll be and be smart, and I think might be intentional on on Hickman and company's part. All right, that wraps up our highlighted picks for the January 2024 solicits. Which books did we miss? Which books are you waiting to see, waiting to read? 
hit us up on social media at nerd by word across all socials. Uh, and when we come back from our final break, finally, my nightmare is over and nerd commendations have returned. We're back for the fan favorite segment where we recommend the good stuff to you that we've been enjoying. We call it. Dave, you're nothing if not consistent. You thought your nightmare was over, but I am still back on the horror train. Um, So uh, turns out uh, hack and slash is back. And that kind of blew my mind, and 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 in more than one way. So, Hack Slash, of course, has been uh, Tim Seeley's baby from the get go, and has you know bounced between publishers and had various different series, but has had sort of a an overarching story arc. Uh, most recently, uh, there was a um, twelve issue maxi series a couple of years back called Hack Slash Resurrection uh, that furthered the story. And was very, very good. And was the first time, I think, that Seeley uh, himself was not involved in the writing of, of that book. Um, and that seems to be a pattern that he's set now where he's letting other creators sort of play in his with his creation a little bit. So uh, just for background, uh, Hackslash is, uh, you know, it's been around for a very long time. It's currently sitting with Image Comics and uh, follows the character Cassie Hack, who teams up with a monstrous uh, dude who actually has a really good heart called Vlad, and they go around and they hunt slashers, quite literally the uh, undead returned that uh, turn into basically stuff like um, Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, you know, Freddy Krueger slashers from horror movies. So she is the, she's the slasher of slashers. She slashes slashers. Um, say that three times real fast. And uh, the series has, you know, always been sort of a weak spot of mine and that I always have really, really enjoyed it uh, as somebody who's, you know, neck deep into horror tropes and the like, seeing a series and comic books that sort of plays around with those tropes a little bit, uh, you know, really, really, really enjoyed. And and here is uh, the official uh, solicitation for the new four-issue miniseries, Hack Slash Back to School, the first issue of which has been released already as of recording. Hack Slash returns with an untold tale and critically acclaimed cartoonist Zoe Thorogood at the bloody helm. Slasher hunter Cassie Hack is only just getting used to her man-monster partner Vlad when she's drawn into a new case involving a murderous bunny mascot, dead kids, and an entire squad of maladjusted teenage serial killer hunters. A completely new chapter in the beloved long-running series that's perfect for new readers and old fans alike, just in time for Halloween. So this is sort of an in-between quill, going back to the beginning of the, the character. This is right after she first meets Vlad, so she's uh, you know younger here than in some of the more recent stories more inexperienced and she uh, gets drawn into an organization that purports to take uh you know final girls basically t- uh, you know, female victims of uh slashers and train them up to uh hunt slashers and uh, i guess this is going to be a story in some ways about how she got some of the skills she's gotten but there's also already some hints that this quote-unquote school is not all it seems to be um what really is the selling point to this, besides if you're a big fan of, of, of Hack Slash to begin with, is simply Zoe Thoroughgood. This is a very different kind of take, although it still very much feels like Hack Slash. It's a very different kind of take, particularly visually. And I think, um, you know, when you when you give a creator writing and art duties and you're like, let them cook, this is the creator's baby, you always get something special. And right away from this first issue, this already feels like something special. Uh, the art absolutely sings. The writing is very, very sharp. They do something a little more um, internal when it comes to Cassie Hack. You get a little bit more into her head into in this series than you have in the past. And as somebody who's you know been there from the beginning and read all of, of Hack Slash crossovers and everything they've done with it, I am thoroughly fascinated with this take on the franchise. And I'm very, very interested to continue reading this. So Hack Slash, Back to School number one, first of a four-part miniseries. If you like horror, if you like old Hack Slash, if you like Zoe Thorogood, just give this thing a read. It is absolutely worth the price of admission. Yeah, I'm very intrigued by this. And I had totally forgotten about your previous nerd commendation with this. And as someone who 
uh, has really enjoyed Tim Seeley's work on Nightwing. Uh, I think he even did some some Green Lanterns stuff that I read. Um, I'm definitely intrigued by this. Um, and and you know me, like a writer doing uh, or or a creator, I should say, doing uh, words and art. Like that's always like the chicken soup for my soul. Like so, I may have to give this one a look. All right, Chris, so um, your recommendation we've actually talked about, and it's queued up in my um, in my um, Marvel Unlimited subscription. I can't wait to actually get to it. What have you got? Yeah, so I said that this one was written specifically for you. So, um, But Moon Knight by Judd McKay, like it, it's been one of the things that I've always been meaning to sit down and read. Uh, it's been highly recommended by friends. Um, I think I, I'm, I'm reading my text that I sent to you. I said it was equal parts detective, thriller, spiritual warfare, but through like a horror lens. Uh, I think it's I think it's a masterpiece. And you know the thing of it is is like jumping in with a character this deep into their publication history. Do you need a deep background? And I don't think so. I, I read the one uh, series from a couple years ago, uh, not the Jeff Lemire one, but the one before that. Uh, where they introduced like the white and black suit. Um, and, and that was really great. Uh, previously nerd commended. Um, so I think this is pretty new reader friendly. Um, and I, what I love about it is that it is like, it tackles so many different big things and it incorporates so many different elements and it really kind of plays with them. And I, you know, a lot of people who have very remedial kind of background on the character of Moon Knight say, well, he's Marvel's Batman. And for me, that's kind of infuriating because that's like saying ramen and spaghetti are the same because they both have noodles. Like these are very different type of characters. They have similarities. Uh, You have, a wealthy man who's a street level fighter, but that like, like that's just the surface value you have. He's a great tactician and all that, but like, these are so different. Um, so I've, I, I don't like nerd commending things until I'm done with them, but I'm only 11 issues in and I, I going to have to break my own rule here because the quality is just so good. Like it feels like there's, there's there, some of these issues are like, episodic in nature it almost feels like a Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode like where like there's a complete story told within one issue but then it also has overarching stories that are being told throughout arcs throughout trades if you will Um, and even those episodic things those episodic adversaries have implications to the larger stories as well like it's just like Judd McKay after his work on black cat those uh those different volumes is is reaching uh al ewing territory for me where i will just follow them for whatever they're writing i'm looking to read a doctor strange book for the first time because jed mckay is writing it so like this is one of the best books that marvel is putting out i know right now it's coming to its tail end um but i i cannot recommend this highly enough like it's you literally have faiths religions gods that are competing with one another you have Khonshu locked up in asgard um and yet he's still trying to communicate with moon knight he's having to com- he's trying to ask Khonshu for things for favors while he's in captivity um because of his his previous actions so like and just the idea of like God's not necessarily being this benevolent thing that we always kind of take for granted with religion or faith. It's just a fascinating thing. Um, And it's kind of like, it almost harkens back to like the old Greek tragedies where the gods are emotional, they're petty. And it's just, it's just a great, great title. Like I said, I'm 11 issues in it's introduced new characters that I'm obsessed with. Uh, You've got Reese who's this, this vampire um, and she's fantastic. Uh, just really great book. And I, I can't wait to, to read all of it, honestly. Sold. Yeah, yeah. I'm ready for it. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to read. I'm going to read this. So um, you, you've converted me. I'm ready. I'm going to read some Moon Knight, which also will be my first Moon Knight series, I believe. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm psyched. 
All right, that wraps up another episode of the Nerd Byword. We thank you so much for riding along with us. If you like what you hear, please like and subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice, whether that is Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, iHeartRadio, or nerdbyword.com. And uh, keep an eye out over the next few months on our official website as things are really starting to cook there. And uh, there's also a possibility you might want to get on our uh, YouTube uh, channel as some things are cooking there as well. I'm hoping within the next couple of months we're going to launch some new features uh, for the Byword that I think a lot of our longtime listeners will really enjoy. Uh, and then, of course, there's the socials. You know, you got the the twicks of it all and uh, any other social media platform you can imagine. You can find us at Nerd by Word or individually at that Nerd Dave and at that Nerd Chris. So uh, let us know what you think of the show. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd by Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.